Hello, it's Manveen. With a sugar rush of Christmas behind us, and while everyone's building up for the new year, we thought we'd bring you a week of highlights with some of our favourite episodes from 2023. In today's episode, following the failed rebellion by the leader of the Wagner Group, Evgeny Prigozhin, against Vladimir Putin back in June, we looked back to 1991 and the fall of the Soviet Union. Prigozhin's march on Moscow was quashed, and two months later, the Wagner leader was dead. But was that attempted coup the end of the threat to Putin's reign? Or, like Mikhail Gorbachev before him, was it just the beginning? Last week, the armed rebellion sweeping towards Moscow ended as suddenly and unexpectedly as it had begun. Before escaping to Belarus, Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, tried to downplay what had happened, describing the armed mutiny he'd been leading as more of a peaceful protest. He said the group's members had started what he called a march for justice. We showed no aggression, he said, but added we were hit by missiles and helicopters. He said his supporters turned around to avoid spilling Russian soldiers' blood. But during the course of that Saturday, as a convoy of Wagner mercenaries moved towards Moscow, taking down Russian helicopters along the way, all while the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, was nowhere to be seen, the situation felt very different. In fact, for many, it was a reminder of another moment in Russian history. Good morning. Mark the date well. August 19th, 1991. Historians are likely to be analysing the events of this day for generations to come. Military leaders and the Soviet secret police have taken control of the government and now Vice President Gennady Yanayev is sitting in the president's seat. When the Russian president Mikhail Gorbachev was dethroned, it began with a coup that actually failed. But the upheaval left him looking so weak that his authority leaked away. Putin may be congratulating the country now on facing down the Wagner revolt, and his government is certainly pretending it's business as usual. But if history tells us anything, there's probably more to come. The situation is highly dynamic. I don't think the threat to Putin's rule is by any means over at this point. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how Putin might fall. A lesson from 1991. My name's Peter Conradi. I'm based in Paris as the Europe editor of The Sunday Times. And... 30 years ago, I was based in Moscow, in what was then the Soviet Union, working as a reporter for a newspaper called The European, which doesn't exist anymore. It was August the 19th, 1991, to be precise. I remember it well. I was living in Moscow, living in an apartment with my wife on the outskirts of the capital. It was a pleasant August. Nothing much was going on. We were looking forward to a relatively 
peaceful week. We were lying asleep in bed and about four, five in the morning, I think, the old style phone in our apartment <laughs> rang. And I thought, this is a bit strange. I answered the phone. Hello. And it was a Russian friend of ours who was sort of quite into kind of opposition, dissident kind of uh, circles. And he said, you better put the TV on. There's something very, very weird happening. I dutifully got up, put the TV on, and they were, if I remember, playing music. Everyone says it was Swan Lake. I'm not sure if it was. It was classical music of some sort. And if I remember, it was on every channel. One flipped from one channel to the other channel, and I thought, this is a bit weird. And that was the beginning of what was to turn out to be an extraordinary three days. And what happened over the course of the next few days? Well, essentially a self-appointed group of eight members of the, I suppose, the security apparatus, what these subsequently are called the power ministries, which was the head of the KGB, the, the security service, the interior minister, the vice president or whatever. These eight fairly elderly men constituted what they called the State Committee on the State of Emergency. And they announced a little bit later that morning that Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the then president of the Soviet Union, was ill at his dacha in the Crimea, where he'd gone on holiday, and that they had taken over. It was as simple as that. How was that going down in Moscow? It was a very, very weird day. Shortly after we'd received this phone call, my wife and I, my wife's also a journalist, got into the car and we drove from our apartment, which is out on the, the west of Moscow, we drove into the centre the road was a little bit rutted, the middle of the main road, and we quickly realised why it was rutted, because tanks had passed down it. And then we oh, soon wow. found ourselves in a traffic jam. A tank caused traffic jam. Tanks from the Soviet Army's crack to Mansk and other divisions raced through the streets of Moscow along roads leading to the Kremlin. Civilian traffic rolled alongside the military vehicles and pedestrians strolled past stores. And the tanks were behaving quite well. They were stopping at traffic lights. They were indicating, I think, when they turned corners. How surreal. It was completely surreal. These tanks were advancing according clearly to a prearranged plan to various points across the city where they then parked, as if to say, this is the new order. Don't even think of causing any trouble. Don't even think of resisting. And at what point did you think Gorbachev probably isn't ill? That's not what's happening here. Pretty quickly. I mean, events moved quite fast in those days. Bear in mind, this was a time without social media, without mobile phones, but word got around very quickly within Russia, within the sort of opposition circles. People began to turn out on the streets and began to basically talk to the soldiers, began to reason with the soldiers who were manning the tanks quite peacefully. It was all very surreal, but also very, very peaceful. And they would sort of say to the soldiers, why are you here? And the soldiers didn't particularly know 
why they were there. A few people, I remember, put flowers into the barrels of the tank. I remember my wife, who was keen for a photograph, climbed on one of the tanks and I dutifully took her photograph. I wouldn't say it was a carnival atmosphere because no one quite knew what was going to happen, nor was it hugely tense either. And in the midst of all of this, there was the figure of Boris Yeltsin, who was the leader of the Russian Republic, which at the time was the biggest of the 15 republics that together made up the Soviet Union. Tanks were also positioned outside the Russian parliament building, Boris Yeltsin's headquarters. The democratically elected president of Russia was soon striding out of the building to address a crowd of supporters. His own radio and television stations by now occupied and forced off the air, he climbed aboard one of the Red Army's own tanks and said the coup leaders had disgraced the Soviet Union. He very quickly emerged as the sort of the spearhead of the resistance to the coup, and he memorably stood on the tank and made a speech from the tank and basically said, we, the people of Moscow, we, the people of Russia, are not going to give in. I mean, it sounds like a remarkable moment. Just remind us what Russia was like at the time, because obviously it was very different to Russia now. It was indeed. The Soviet Union, as it was then, had been a communist country. Everything essentially was controlled by the state. It was a communist country that by the mid-80s was running out of money. It was falling further and further behind the West, both economically, both militarily and so on. And it was run by a bunch of old men who barely knew what they were doing. Enter Mikhail Gorbachev in 1985. He became the new leader of the Soviet Communist Party and so of the country. And he started out to reform this country, to try and, in a sense, turn communism into, in a sort of phrase, communism with a human face or socialism with a human face. This process was kind of well underway by the time I arrived in Moscow as a reporter in 1988. He thought everything was going to be under control. He thought he just needed to make a few tweaks and everything would be fine. But gradually what happened is that he had unleashed all sorts of forces. There were the kind of the nationalist forces in the non-Russian republics, places like Ukraine, like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Georgia, and so on, who began to start dreaming of regaining their past independence. And also the so-called Democrats within Russia itself, who said, actually, we don't want a kind of reformed, cuddly kind of communism. We just want no communism at all. Gorbachev was on the one hand trying to reform, on the other hand, trying to grapple with these people that wanted him to go faster and faster and further and further, then lurking in the background were the hardliners, the people who were ultimately were to carry out the coup, who said, no, you've gone too far. We don't want you to dismantle our country. We want to keep the Soviet Union. Mm, so sh shaking things up and, and a system of perestroika, as they called it. So this is the opening up, the, the making it a bit more democratic. But clearly it wasn't going down well with everyone. You're there. The tanks have started rolling into Moscow. You're watching this. Your wife is on one of the bad tanks taking a picture. <laughs> but 
This attempted coup that seemed to be happening didn't go to plan. Tell us how that period of three days, how did it end? It was very clear almost from the beginning that these people of the State Committee on the State of Emergency, or the Gang of Eight, as they quickly became nicknamed. These are hardliners who didn't want any kind of reforms, any opening up. Precisely. It was clear that they didn't really know what they were doing. There was a famous press conference on the first afternoon. The nation's new rulers didn't appear in person until late afternoon. They called a news conference. Gennady Yanayev, the man who until yesterday was Mikhail Gorbachev's vice president, confirming the transfer of power and saying Mr Gorbachev needed time to rest. He was sort of convening this press conference and his hands were visibly shaking and everyone could see that his hands were shaking and the press conference was, of course, broadcast on Soviet state TV the whole of the country could see that his hands were shaking. It was clear from then that the coup wasn't on very firm foundations. And in the course of the three days, they essentially bottled it. They should have arrested Yeltsin. They failed to arrest Yeltsin. Once he was out in the open, they couldn't really do it quietly because he was surrounded and protected by a crowd. The soldiers, it was clear that they weren't going to fire on the crowd if things turned nasty because Mm. they didn't quite know what was going on. Basically, by the end of the third day, the whole thing had effectively completely fallen apart. Gorbachev was liberated from his dacha in Crimea and he flew back in the early hours of the Thursday morning to what he hoped would be a, a triumphant welcome. And yet, although that coup failed, although Gorbachev is back in the Kremlin, he's not there for long. Gorbachev thought that he was going to come back and it would be business as usual. Boris Yeltsin, who'd always been his rival, had other ideas. He was in a very, very powerful position psychologically because he was the hero of the coup. He had essentially rescued Gorbachev, one could say. And he forced, first of all, Gorbachev to sign a decree abolishing the Communist Party. Then very quickly, the three Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, who'd been sort of leading the independence drive, they immediately declared independence and said, you know, we're leaving. One by one, many of the other Soviet republics, also Ukraine in particular, began to think we're leaving as well. And essentially... By the end of that year, by December 1991, the leaders of the Soviet republics had got together and they'd essentially told Mikhail Gorbachev, the country's over, there will be no Soviet Union anymore, we're all going our own way, and by the way, you, Mikhail Gorbachev, are out of a job. There are lessons there that... Something as dramatic as that happens, you just can't continue as things were before. In that case, something fundamentally had changed. After something like that, which had revealed quite how fragile his hold on power was, he just couldn't simply resume as if nothing had happened. And I think that's a lesson that Vladimir Putin may well want to take note of. Coming up, 
How closely does the Wagner mutiny compare to events in 1991? And what can that tell us about Putin's fate? We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. So, Peter, you were telling us earlier about the failed coup in 1991, which still managed to bring down President Gorbachev within six months and brought down the Soviet Union too. How does that compare to Putin's position, sort of in the run-up to last Saturday and beyond? It's interesting to compare the two men and to compare the two situations. So the two men are very, very different. Gorbachev was, at heart, I think, a Democrat to some extent. Mm. He was a reform communist. He was not out for personal enrichment. He wasn't really out for personal power. Vladimir Putin, as has become very clear in the 20 or so years since he became president, has a very, very different view. For him, it's all about restoring the economic and political power of Russia, and also all about Vladimir Putin and ensuring that he is at the top of Russia. He is unchallenged. Considering the differences in those two characters, you know, as you say, Gorbachev was sometimes indecisive Democrat. You've got Putin, who's clearly this strong man who's you know, developed Russia, but is also hugely authoritarian. And yet, when that moment of an attempted coup comes along, they both look similarly weak. You're right. They did appear to be both very weak. Gorbachev was weak because he was effectively under house arrest in Crimea. He was, in fact, following events, as he afterwards revealed, by listening to the BBC World Service, which was extraordinary. <laughs> Putin wasn't under house arrest. Putin was in the Kremlin, at least we think he was in the Kremlin. There was an, this intriguing report that came out in the course of the day saying that the flight tracker website had seen just after two o'clock, I think, Moscow time on the Saturday afternoon, that the plane normally used by Putin had left Moscow, apparently in the direction of St. Petersburg. So we don't even know if Putin... <laughs> he panicked. Well, he seems to have panicked. There was a brief statement in the morning on Saturday and then he effectively disappeared from public view until Monday evening. And in the meantime, in the course of Saturday, this extraordinary armoured column had already taken control of Rostov-on-Don, which is a city of more than a million people just near the Ukrainian border, and was advancing its way hundreds of miles through Russia, you know, eventually reaching about 120 miles or so from the capital. And during all this time, there was not a squeak out of Putin. It is remarkable. Are there differences too, though? Because, you know, as you described that moment where 
The tanks have rolled in. There is no Gorbachev there to do anything. But Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, suddenly emerges, jumps onto a tank and looks very powerful. Is there anybody similar in the Putin world who would be a potential replacement? No, that is, I think, the tragedy of Russia. The only kind of opponents that one can see to Putin at the moment, the only ones that are at large, are those on sort of the hardline side, as it were. So-called Democrats, of which Yeltsin was sort of the leading figure, they don't really exist anymore. The only one that is there in a position of prominence is uh, Navalny, the opposition leader, I suppose, who had a huge following a few years ago. He's now in jail, uh, or in a labour camp rather, in Russia, and is likely to be there, unfortunately, for many, many more years. The liberal opposition has been completely crushed or gone into exile abroad. So that is a very, very different situation from what was the case 30 years ago. And Peter, if you are planning a coup, if you want it to be successful, I suppose there are a couple of things that you've really got to have a grip on. And the first is probably the army. Just talk us through how the role of the Russian army was different in each of these scenarios in both 1991 and in what we saw just over a week ago. In 1991, the plotters were in control of the armed forces. They brought the armed forces into Moscow. They occupied all the key strategic points in Moscow. So in one sense, they were in control. But on the other hand, it wasn't entirely clear what those soldiers would actually do, whether they would actually carry out commands, whether they would actually fire on civilians if they were required to do so. So it was a slightly curious situation then, but in a sense, it was relatively straightforward because there was just the one army. The curious thing in today's Russia is that there are a multiplicity of armies. There is the regular mm. army, there is Prigozhin's Wagner group forces, which are essentially a private mercenary army of up to 25,000 people in total. And so in this context, there was this force that was moving through Russia, but it wasn't challenged by the regular army, or not very much. I mean, there was a small skirmish where some aviation fired at the convoy and the Wagner's forces fired back down a couple of planes and a helicopter and so on. Not a particularly impressive performance by the Russian regular forces, but there would have been a big battle on the outskirts of Moscow. Maybe some of the regular army would have gone over to him. Other, perhaps more elite units or more tightly controlled units wouldn't have done and the whole thing would have been, I think, very, very messy and very bloody indeed. If you are planning a coup, the other thing you really want to capture is the media. You, know, you often hear of coups taking over the state TV station first. Talk us through how the media responded to events in both 1991 and last week. What was quite surprising last week was that the media were reporting in relatively real time in Russia what was going on. They weren't trying to pretend nothing was happening. And I think that's just because in this day and age, with so much social media around, with all sorts of other kind of forms of communication, they would have risked looking completely absurd if they'd have just kept playing Swan Lake all day. I mean, back in 1991, very, very different kind of media environment. The state television was controlled by 
the plotters. So very little truth was getting out to the people. But on the other hand, people managed to communicate with one another. There were various kind of opposition media outlets, radio stations and so on that had a means of communicating. So people weren't, again, weren't as completely in the dark then. And in those days, an awful lot of Russians used to listen to the Russian service of the BBC or Voice of America or other kind of Western broadcasters who were providing minute-by-minute minute accounts of what was going on. That's amazing. Where would people these days get their alternative news? Do you know, hear what people would have listened to on the BBC World Service in the, in the past? An awful lot of people will be getting their information from social media. A particular site that's really popular in Russia is Telegram, which is a kind of encrypted service where all the main actors in this drama actually have their own channels. So Prigozhin was putting out his statements on Telegram, and all you need to do is download the app and you could hear his latest pronouncement. We're not in a sort of 100% totalitarian regime controls every source of information kind of situation. Yes, if people spend all their time purely watching state television, they will get a very, very one-sided kind of regime view of what's going on. But it doesn't require much effort if you want to know something different. So ultimately, Peter, having looked back at 1991, what can we learn from Gorbachev's experience that might help us predict what happens to Putin next? The key thing looking forward is the election. There is a presidential election in March of next year. A few years back, the constitution was specifically changed to allow Putin to serve a third consecutive term. However, he, Putin, has never confirmed that he's going to stand. Now, clearly, Russia being Russia, if he does stand then it's almost sure that he will be elected or he will be seen to be have been elected. But, you know, is it conceivable that behind the scenes he had been so weakened that these people might have the courage to get together and encourage him not to stand? Say, really, do you think you should uh, stand again? Might it not be wiser to retire? Putin's fundamental appeal has been as someone who brought stability to Russia. He's the sort of the antithesis of the period of uncertainty, of chaos that began with that coup in 1991 and which followed during the 1990s when Russia was sort of a political basket case, an economic basket case. And for the first 20 years or so of his time in power, he delivered on that. Now, all that legacy has begun to unravel. The economy has been going badly. Living standards have started to fall. Even more importantly, this is a man that embodied political stability. But what kind of political stability is it if you've got a mercenary army of thousands of men traveling hundreds of miles through the country? You know, he doesn't give the impression of being in control anymore. And if he's not really in control, he's not bringing political stability, he's not bringing an improvement in living standards, what is he doing? Mm. 
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Europe editor for The Sunday Times, Peter Conradi. If you're a subscriber, you can read all of Peter's fantastic reporting on the ongoing upheaval in Russia at thetimes.co.uk. You might also be interested in his book, Who Lost Russia? From the Collapse of the USSR to Putin's War on Ukraine. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel, with production help from Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you enjoyed listening, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. <laughs>